0: Well, hello, wherever you are in this big, beautiful world that God's created. My name is Doug Hooley, and I'm your host on the Called Out Cafe podcast. This is episode number 17 in the series based on my latest book, Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. Well, today we're going to keep looking at what Paul had to say to the local Ecclesias, about how to conduct themselves when they gather in the name of Jesus, what the purpose and the function of the ecclesia is supposed to be. But before I get started, I want to let you know about a series of videos that I've been doing, which is more related to the first book that I wrote called Watch. Watch is a commentary on the talk that Jesus gave regarding his return to this earth and the establishment of his earthly kingdom here sometime in the future. The talk Jesus gave is known as the Olivet Discourse. Watch served as the basis for the first Called Out Cafe podcast series, and of course it's still available to listen to on uh, Podbean or your favorite podcast forum, although I'm yet to get it up on the YouTube platform, so don't spend much time searching for it there yet. This series of videos that I've been doing has been zeroing in on what the Bible has to say about the future Antichrist, the beast of Revelation. I've done five videos so far on the topic, and I have about that many left to produce. In case you're wondering, (laughs) no, I am not obsessed with the Antichrist. I'm just trying to be thorough on the topic, and there is, surprisingly, a lot to cover, especially given all the many misconceptions and bizarre theories that are out there. The first video I did was in response to my sense that a lot of people have been misled by some in the church to believe that the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast, or at least a precursor to the mark of the beast. Now, I don't want to get into the big controversy about is the was it good to take the vaccine, or is it good or not. There may be great reasons to not take the vaccine. Um, you know, even biblical reasons, people i have heard piece together cases for that. That's all well and fine. And there may be, you know, health reasons, and medical science is still working on that, and they're uncovering all sorts of things uh, in regards to the vaccine. So, you know, the pros and cons are being weighed. So, I am not commenting on that at all. You know, there may be other moral objections to taking the vaccine. All I'm saying is that it has nothing to do with the mark of the beast. And so, my This first video is in response to that sense that there are some in the church that have been misleading people into thinking that the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast, or at least a precursor to the mark. That video is titled, How to Tell if You've Taken the Mark of the Beast. <laughs> surprise, I mean, it was a big surprise to me. That video, you know, I will normally get several hundred um, views on the more popular of my videos, which, you know, relative to what's going on out there in the YouTube world, that's not very many. Uh, You know, it's a big old world with billions of people in it. So you only get a few hundred views. It's not a great deal. I got to say, though, that video at its peak was getting viewed two to 3,000 times per day. (laughs) I think last time I checked, it's close to 30,000 views on it now. So that should tell you How worried some people are about (laughs) uh, having taken the mark of the beast or their friends or family having taken the mark of the beast. Spoiler alert, okay? As of this date, according to the only source of reliable information on the subject, the Bible, no one has taken the mark of the beast. (laughs) Anyway, if you're interested, those, video, those videos await you on my YouTube channel. The one I'm working on right now um, is titled, What is the Mark of the Beast? Uh, in between that first one I did and now I did one on why the number 666 does not represent Caesar Nero. You know, there's a big misconception about that. Um, what the number 666 does represent. Uh, there's one on the Antichrist 101, who or what is he? And the most recent one I put up there uh, is on the Antichrist. Uh, No, not the Antichrist. Oh, there's another one in between there called What is the Beast of Revelation? Okay, so that's what's up there so far. The one I'm working on right now, I think I already told you, is uh, On the Mark of the Beast. And it's going to be the longest one yet. I, I was hoping to keep them under like 20 minutes, but sometimes there's just too much to say. Anyway... They're all up there on my YouTube channel. Please go take a look if you haven't, and subscribe to that YouTube channel if you haven't and, and you're so inclined. Thank you for thinking about that. Well, today we're going to pick it back up with Paul's letter to the Ecclesia located in the region of Philippi. And we're going to start off talking about two biblical roles that are found in the Ecclesia. These are not offices, they are roles that of elders and deacons. Okay, so in the original draft of the book that this series is based on, Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus, the adequate treatment of the topic of elders and deacons took up two chapters. But, (laughs) because nobody's going to read a book that's a thousand pages long, and I gotta say, not many are reading one. (laughs) <laughs> not many are reading one that's 540 pages long either. But I had to reduce the topic down to a few paragraphs. Uh, I may cover the topic, you know, as interesting as it may or may not sound to you more thoroughly later, but for now, I'm going to just stick with what I what made it into the book and what made the final edit. So, there is a lot more to say on the topic is what I'm saying than I will say here. Well, the letter to the ecclesia at Philippi is addressed to the Holy Ones in Philippi, along with, so the Holy Ones and the Episcopoi and the diaconoi. That translates into English as the bishops and deacons in the King James Version of the Bible, and overseers and deacons in the English Standard Version. So Paul uses the word translated as overseer, interchangeably throughout his letters with the word translated as elder. So, you got this uh, episkopoi and presbyteros, elder. So, he uses them interchangeably. Um, That's because in Paul's mind, they seem to be the same thing. So, that's what we should have in our minds. Elders, or overseers, are those who are respected and have been recognized— as being spiritually mature, truth-seeking, called-out ones who've responded to God's calling to put their, uh, their concerns into action, and it'll come out as love for the community of the ecclesia. In the earliest ecclesia, there were many elders, as many elders as there were those who fit the criteria for being elders— Elders did not serve terms. They served so long as they qualified. Now, although no ceremony or formal recognition or ordination is necessary for elders to be recognized as an elder, Paul and others, like Barnabas, recognized elders in the local ecclesias wherever they went. So they were a thing. Paul spelled out some of the qualities someone considered or Uh, to be an elder should possess. And he did that to his protege, Timothy. He also did it to Titus. So we need to be careful with translations of Paul's letter to Timothy, where he writes of the qualifications of someone who, quote, desires to be an elder, unquote. That's found in 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 to 13, where he's talking about that. First, the word which means elder has been translated as bishop in many translations. it might be in conjunction with the words office of bishop or office of overseer, or it may use the words position of the bishop or overseer. These translations are all misleading. The literal translation of 1 Timothy 3 verse 1 is, quote, This is a true saying. If a man desires to be an overseer, It is a good work he desires. The word office or even position, which is not found in the original scripture, indicates a title within an institutional hierarchy. However, the term elder only denotes a respected role, not a rank. So that word is not there. It doesn't say uh, office or position. Only elder. And it doesn't even say elder. Of course, it's uh, the Greek word for elder. Paul also sent Timothy guidance on what qualities an elder should possess for those who desire to be an overseer or elder. These were not people who were appointed. Rather, I mean, that's not who Paul was talking about. Rather, they were those who wanted to act in the role of elder. They desired to be an elder, to be considered an elder. Please get the difference here. And and on the one hand, it would be like um, Paul writing to Timothy saying, Hey, Timothy, this is how you should choose and ordain an elder. That's not what it says. It's like, this is some advice on those who desire to be considered elders. Completely a different thing. You wanna be viewed as an elder in our uh, community of ecclesia. These are some things to keep in mind. This is what people look at naturally. Um, So it's just advice to those considering, you know, whether or not they wanna be an elder or not. Paul wrote to Titus specifically that he wanted wanted him to appoint elders in every town. So the language there is a little bit different It appears the motivation behind it was so that there was a reliable source of teaching based on truth in each of the communities which could combat the, quote, many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, unquote. And that language is found in Titus 1, verse 10. So recognizing elders was Paul's way of saying these elders are the people who get what we're talking about the most. They understand the gospel. They've demonstrated that they have sound judgment and should be your resources when you have questions or issues arise. So, like Paul started off this letter, it's like they served as his points of contact in each of the communities, the cells of Ecclesia. Paul often encourages respect for the elders, along with others, of course, who work for the benefit of the ecclesia. Uh, Where does he say that? He encouraged that, for example, in First Thessalonians chapter 2, no, in chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. Well, today in churches, it's common to have like a set number of elder positions. You know, the number is five, let the number be five, and not six or four, unless thou passest through four on the way to five. Let the number be five. Different churches of different sizes have different uh, constructs of elder boards. The selection criteria usually has something to do with what we find in 1 Timothy and Titus. But still, it varies from church to church. Elders usually serve a specific term, and then a new elder is selected to take their place. I'll just say it that is or those things are unbiblical practices. They are not substantiated in the Bible. Term limits and a set number of elders is not substantiated in the Bible. They may be permitted, but uh, there's no biblical basis for that. So term limits, really? Those previously called elders no longer are spiritually mature (laughs) called out ones whose judgment and opinions can be trusted? That's weird. They have two-year limit on caring about the health of the local ecclesia. Well, in truth, those who are a part of a local biblically based ecclesia intuitively know who the real elders are without even being told. Just think about it. Think about those in your life or those that are going to your church that you know you can trust spiritually for their spiritual advice and their their comments on opinions on scripture. Well, anyone who's been around knows who is spiritually mature and shows concern for others without any selection process or formal recognition. You intuitively know that if you've been around a while. They're the called-out ones who you trust and weigh in as like the voices in your head when it comes to spiritual matters. A deacon is a term that's still used today, of course, It best translates as servant, or even waiter. Waiter? Or someone who performs basic human need-meeting duties. This is similar to the role of a, believe it or not, a pastor. However, similar to a pastor in the true biblical sense of being a servant and caring for the needs of people of the ecclesia, and not the modern boss-of-the-church sense of the word pastor. The term deacon today should be looked at as an all-encompassing term for anyone in the local ecclesia is taking care of the physical needs of a local ecclesia. Again, it's a role and not an office. They're facilitating love for one another. No formal title is necessary. But if there's a need going unmet, it would be appropriate for the group to ask someone to serve in the role of a deacon to address the need similar to what they did in the book of Acts after everybody uh, just was hanging around Jerusalem and they needed people to help out. The apostles needed people to help out. Well, that's all I'm going to say about elders and deacons for now. It's a biblical role, um, and it's more of a—really, It really, it's been overly formalized and too many parameters put around it, and sometimes those selected as elders— really are only extensions of what the uh, the people that the pastor wants to have around him to support what he's saying. Um, that's not always the case but sometimes it's reduced to that. but for now I'll talk more about that later for now that's all I'm gonna say about that <clears throat> which by the way is the name of my new uh, kind of series I'm doing a couple of times a week. that's all I got to say about that where uh, I just, pick a topic that I'm neither studying or answering questions on, and I um, and I just uh, give you a few of my comments, usually under 10 minutes or around 10 minutes. Anyway, I got sidetracked there when I just uh, said something that reminded me of that. Anyway, we're going to move on now to the Book of Colossians, because that's all Paul really had to say directly pertaining to the gathering together of the Ecclesia to the church at Philippi. So Jesus spoke strongly against making a show of religious practices. In Colossians, Paul kicks it up a notch and he speaks out against religious practices just in general. This is what he says in Colossians chapter two, verses 20 to chapter three, verse two. Listen to this. Therefore, If you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using? According to the commandments and doctrines of men, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. So please don't miss what Paul is teaching here. The things of the earth, we should not Focus our attention on include what? Religious practices. If we've been raised with Christ, such religious practices, which reek of holier than thou piety, are of no profit. Because Paul wrote against them, such religious methods are anti biblical. Religious practices that he's talking about are against what the Bible is saying to us. In their place, Paul encourages us to set our minds on the things above, the heavenly, unseen, spiritual realm where Jesus and his Father dwell. It includes the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus will one day bring with him when he returns to this earth. You know, thank you, Paul, for your letter to the Colossians to make it so clear, but that's all we're going to talk about in Colossians. Now we're going to move on to first and second Thessalonians, where the theme of both Paul's letters to the Ecclesia at Thessalonica is the return of Jesus to this earth. I know that's not always what comes out, but that's what the overall theme of is to the the uh, church at or the Ecclesia in Thessalonica. But Paul's advice to the ecclesia in Thessalonica strongly echoes the prime directive of the ecclesia, to live in faith, hope, and love. But this time, Paul also reminds those in Thessalonica of a command he previously gave them that's not in line with those today who say that the church should be on the front lines of social justice movements and that it should be loudly using its voice to defy the government where it offends our Christian sensibilities. What was Paul's direction to the contrary? Well, here it is. This is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. He said, he wrote, <clears throat> that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Paul does not advise the called-out ones at Thessalonica to put their faith where their mouth is and speak out for or against political or social justice causes that align with their right-wing Christian moral values. And I'm not saying that your right-wing Christian moral values are wrong by any means, but he's not calling on them to say anything about it. He's not calling on them to protest the evil of his day. You think we have evil now? In terms of evil, it was no different then. Think about the stuff going on in his day that in Western 21st century uh, America we're not dealing with now. Slavery. The uber-violent gladiator games. Rampant abortions. Okay, we may have that one now. But, I mean, they were just out in the open and unprotested. Rampant abortions going on there. Unfair taxation empire-building wars, or the state-sponsored worship of false gods, and sometimes the forced worship of false gods. Paul's urging the called out to accept their place in life, live quietly, mind their own business, and work with their hands. This is what the Apostle Paul, on behalf of Jesus, said, or commanded, was proper behavior towards people who are on the outside of the ecclesia. Please don't kill the messenger here, right? I'm just saying what Paul wrote. Uh, You know, I believe what Paul wrote was correct, but that's what he wrote. wrote. Paul doesn't just throw in the part about work with your hands randomly. He does not want people to stop working in anticipation of Jesus' return. Many in the primal ecclesia, the first early church, believed that Jesus' return was going to occur so that they didn't need to continue to earn a living. That's what he's addressing there. This was especially true in Thessalonica, as indicated by the amount of space dedicated to the teaching on the specific circumstances that's going to surround Jesus' return. The apostle Paul recognized this and told them to keep working so that they would Lack for nothing," he told them that in First uh, Thess- Thessalonians chapter four verse twelve. It's not a coincidence that the next thing Paul talks about is the return of Jesus. He conveys to the ecclesia that unlike those living on the outside of the ecclesia in darkness, in spiritual darkness, that those on the inside are not living in spiritual darkness and they don't need to be ignorant or unaware regarding the return of Jesus, nor do they need to be surprised like by a thief in the middle of the night. This is a message of hope. As we await Jesus' return, and for Him to put everything right, we are simply to abide in the belief of Him, the hope of His coming, and love for one another. The same theme is contained in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. Well, we're up to the book of First and Second Timothy, but since I've included this information in passages that we've previously discussed in past podcasts, I'm going to ask that you go back and listen to those rather than me repeat it all here. Um, so in Paul's second letter to Timothy, he again encourages Timothy to adhere to what he'd already been taught, and to pass it on to faithful men who are going to be able to teach others also, then we should expect by now, knowing the key biblical principles of the ecclesia, beyond encouraging Timothy to, quote, flee youthful passions, (laughs) Paul encourages him to live according to the principles which bind the ecclesia, his belief in Jesus and love. Part of the prime, two-thirds of the prime directive. We should just not be surprised to see Paul's theme over and over again in the New Testament. So, Titus and Philemon. Titus was a disciple and an apostle of Paul, not a disciple of Jesus. He was a student or disciple of Paul. He was an apostle of Paul because Paul sent him out as his messenger. Uh, You know, he was, Paul was his mentor and essentially his boss who was speaking on behalf of Jesus as an apostle. So Titus was like a uh, second-degree <laughs> apostle. He was the uh, apostle of Paul. Who Paul had left Titus was the, his guy that he had left behind in Crete to continue the work there that Paul had begun. Paul wrote Titus about how he and those of the local ecclesia he was living among should conduct themselves as individuals. Those things which pertain to the ecclesia have been tied in with the topics that I've already mentioned in, uh, in previous episodes of this survey, just like First uh, and 2 Timothy. So please go back and listen to the past episodes if you're interested. But the things that Paul had to say to Titus were the same things that he's been saying all along. There's nothing new that we haven't already talked about in regards specifically to how the church should operate, function, what its purpose is, etc. Well, Philemon was a letter written to Paul's beloved friend and laborer, Philemon. It was also to the ecclesia of his household, and a couple other guys were mentioned. The letter was supposed to accompany a slave named Onesimus, who belonged to Philemon. Onesimus had served Paul. Paul wrote in hope that Philemon would treat Onesimus kindly. He thanked him for the loan of Onesimus. Perhaps Paul was trying to get him to even release him from slavery. Paul opens the letter praising Philemon for his love and faith that he has towards Jesus and all the saints. Love and faith. Again, two out of three of the guiding principles of the ecclesia. But that's all we can really tie into uh, the operation of the Ecclesia from Philemon. So we're going to move on to the book of Hebrews. Well, the author, I'm sure that you know, of Hebrews is not known for sure. It's not mentioned within the text of the book of Hebrews. But most scholars believe it to be Paul. So as if the author of Hebrews, and I am assuming it is Paul, has read my book, (laughs) leaving the church to follow Jesus, like ha. He emphasizes the essential three principles of the ecclesia's prime directive again. It's, you know, like I'm saying, it's like he's read my book. Let me read this to you. This is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 22 to 25. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, and let us be considerate of one another in order to stir up love and doing good, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but comforting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This is the only scripture found in the New Testament which directly addresses the assembling of the called out. And I hope you got there, what I was talking about, faith, hope, and love, clearly proclaimed in that passage. But anyway, this is the only scripture, to repeat myself, in the New Testament, which directly addresses the assembling together of the called out. And as I uh, engage with discourse, (laughs) with people online, in the social media realm, when the topic of, should we be going to church, comes up, this is the one right here. Uh, Of course we should, because of Hebrews chapter 10. This is what they always quote. Even so, meeting together is not the end goal of this passage of Scripture. Assembling of ourselves together only supports the fundamental principles of the ecclesia, increasing our faith, maintaining our hope, and loving one another. Especially love for one another, doing good, being considerate, and comforting one another. But also hope as the day that they're living for approaches. There is no prescription for how often, when, or in what manner Paul is recommending that the members of the ecclesia gather. The answer is not found on a calendar. It's found in answering the question, how often... Is it necessary to meet together, to show love, draw near, consider one another's needs, and provide comfort? The answer to that question will change as circumstances change, and it will be different from one cell of ecclesia to the next. Geographically, um, and in terms of time also, uh, it's going to be different a hundred years ago compared to now, and a hundred years from now compared to now. Nowhere in the New Testament, including Hebrews chapter 10, is there a mandate for the ecclesia to formally gather. No organized or institutional meetings are remotely spoken of. There are no requirements for any special members to be present, such as a pastor or an elder no specifics regarding any service or sacraments that must take place, no set day or time, nor certain number of people which need to be present. According to this passage, which is so often used to support church attendance, and in light of other scripture, the assembling of the called out could be as simple as meeting a single other member of the ecclesia for lunch or coffee in the name of Jesus. You know, it doesn't even have to include food. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, that deals with uh, the Hebrew chapter 10 passage that is so popular to quote by those who say, you got to be in church. But the bottom line there is, please don't miss that as it's saying that we need to not forsake the gathering together, that the purpose that's written right there, loud and clear, is to uh, maintain faith, hope, and to love One another. That's why we get together. Are we going to move on? We all have leaders. Here's what Paul said our relationship should be towards them. This is from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Have confidence in your leaders and accept your subordinate place, for they keep watch over your very persons as those who must give an accounting. Do this so that they might do this with joy and not be groaning. (laughs) Looking back three paragraphs earlier, uh, in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 to 8, Paul wrote this, Remember your leaders who proclaim to you the message of God. Jesus, the Messiah, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Clearly, Paul is referring to spiritual leaders in chapter 13. To whatever extent God has placed a leader in your life or you've allowed someone to lead you, when leadership is asserted, Paul told us, he told us, (laughs) he didn't told us anything, he told us that we should submit to it. The elders in a local community of Ecclesia qualify as leaders. As an overseer, they've been given the responsibility of watching over your very person. This scripture is consistent with other passages which encourage submission, like children obey your parents, wives submit to your husbands, and slaves obey your earthly masters. Well, naturally, if what a leader inside or outside the ecclesia asks us to do goes against what God has asked of us, well, that changes things. That's something that requires great wisdom. That is ground upon which we must tread lightly. Well, called out ones who act in the role of elders in the ecclesia are to approach their responsibility in this way. A little bit more on elders here for you. This is from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. The elders who are among you, I, the Apostle Peter, exhort, I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Elders in the Ecclesia are the only biblical form of anything that can be considered leadership leadership besides Jesus. Elders are mentors. They're to lead by example, not by issuing orders. Issuing authoritarian directives should not be necessary if the words of Paul are heeded and we submit to our leaders. Considering the kind of leadership Peter says an elder should use, this includes submitting to the example that they set. This is what it means in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, when it says to imitate their faith a better translation is follow the example of their faith other translations of hebrews chapter 13 verse 15 use words such as obey your rulers and they watch over your souls <laughs> these words have been misused by leaders in the church for centuries some believe the authoritarian language in this traditional translation obey your rulers gives them what they believe to be the biblical mandate needed to lord their authority over those in the church. Well, if that is true, such an interpretation is certainly inconsistent with the rest of the New Testament. If a pastor or preacher ever must assert themselves and rely on such authority rather than relying on the authority of scripture itself and leading of the Holy Spirit, there is something terribly wrong. So, Let's kind of sum up here Paul's letters and and make some conclusions because we're done with what Paul wrote to the ecclesias about how to conduct themselves and the purpose and the function of the ecclesia when they gather. Paul's guidance and commands to the ecclesia on behalf of Jesus was in complete harmony with what Jesus had said and recorded in the Gospels that we've talked about earlier. Paul applied the principles of faith, hope, and love in each of his letters to whatever the issue was that he was addressing. You'll need to look somewhere besides the writings of Paul if you want to find support for your favorite religious practices. Doing things, or works, is a big topic in Paul's letters. Paul cautions the ecclesia about falling into the trap of believing that doing anything other than trusting in Jesus for one's eternal status is to submit to being judged according to the Old Testament law. Good works, or doing good, or doing the right thing, or living righteously, is something that God has foreordained for His elect. That which is ordained by God is not just a possible outcome, it's the only outcome. His children, who most of the time may not even be aware of it, are used by Him for His purposes. Although good works may be fine things to participate in, as individuals are called to do so. You know, like, uh, go out on your own and do these things. Great. Churches, which emphasize works as what it means to serve or please God, or the importance of serving the community as a church, a corporate body of believers, or taking part in social justice causes, are not going to find support From the apostle paul based on his writings to the ecclesias next the ecclesia has not replaced israel according to paul the idea that the church had replaced israel it has roots that are going back to the days of paul you can see them evident in the book of romans paul's letter to the ecclesia at rome well unfortunately that idea took hold and grew into something evil in the church that's still with us today. Replacement theology, supersessionism. Because of how God had used Israel's disobedience, he's made it possible for the Gentile believers to be adopted into his earthly family of chosen people. The Ecclesia is made up of many individuals, diverse people, all of whom the Holy Spirit uses to bring about growth. Growth meaning gaining further knowledge and understanding of Jesus and trusting that information is true to the extent that people live their lives according to it. Growth in the knowledge and understanding of Jesus is what some might call increasing faith. Growth means to live more and more in the hope of what Jesus said is in store for us, and less and less based on our circumstances in this world. And growth means to live less for ourselves and more with love for others in mind. Doesn't mean how many people are warming your, your church pew benches, or how much money's being given, or how many acts of uh, kindness to the community that you've committed. Next, Paul likens the diversity of individuals and their gifts and abilities in the ecclesia to that of parts of a body, all of which are interdependent on one another to function efficiently. And, of course, Jesus is clearly the one and only head of this metaphorical body. His Holy Spirit is like the thoughts or the signals from the brain which dictate the function and coordination of the body. While the Holy Spirit utilizes the gifts and abilities of all the members of the ecclesia, he calls some mature, wise members who are of good character to be leaders. They're to lead by example. And of course, these leaders are known as elders. Next, unity is a product of true faith, hope, and love for one another. This elusive goal of unity is stressed repeatedly. Unity is part of our great hope. There's no indication that anyone this side of the Lord's return has or will ever achieve perfect unity within the ecclesia. Now, I'm sure that there's perfect unity going on in heaven where the bulk of the ecclesia exists, where Jesus is at. But Paul was not short on advice on how to work towards unity, submission to others being among the points that he often emphasized. Because the Ecclesia is diverse, and there are perpetually new called-out ones living at all different levels of understanding, like of the gospel and their freedom in Christ, Paul gives guidance on living together, where the faith of some is more mature than others. So, for as little as the New Testament serves as a like a how-to guide on the Ecclesia gathering— Paul emphasized the importance of getting together. We just talked about that from the book of Hebrews. Money is another topic that comes up in church often today, whether it's the giving of tithes and offerings to support various functions of the church or giving money to gain favor with God and getting more money back in return. However, within Paul's letters, the only thing we see money being given for, the only thing, is to support travelling evangelists also known as travelling missionaries and those in great physical need such as elderly widows or those impoverished by famine where people could support themselves through some sort of occupation including those acting in the role of a pastor or teacher they were supposed to do so now although paul asked that money be set aside for special needs on a couple of different occasions he never suggested that it be a regular practice, nor is there any indication in Scripture of it being a regular practice, I mean, on an ongoing basis. Next, today in the evangelical church, the highest burden that they've placed on their own shoulders is that of the 19th century invention known as the Great Commission. The teaching that says every member of the church, rather than the Holy Spirit, are responsible for spreading the gospel and making disciples. Yet, Paul taught something different. While some are specifically called to evangelism, and like Peter wrote, we may all be called to be ready to give an answer about our faith, not everyone has been appointed by God or been commanded to be an evangelist. Paul wrote that it's not the wisdom of words that lead people to Jesus but rather the appointment of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, the lost don't even possess the ability to understand the gospel, let alone believe it and embrace it and live by it. Protecting the integrity of the ecclesia comes up not just a little bit in Paul's letters, and it takes on two different forms. First, maintaining discipline, and then guarding against false doctrine. Guarding against deception maintains the truth that's behind the ecclesia's faith and hope. Love necessitates discipline within the ecclesia. Love of God, love of one another, love for the victims of the sin involved, and love for the sinners in trying to correct them. While judging others in the ecclesia may sometimes be necessary, Paul tells us that it is up to God alone to judge those outside the ecclesia. Outsiders are those who do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God and Messiah, who do not share the hope of His coming, and who do not love and support those who believe in Jesus and have this hope. Paul speaks of the ecclesia as those on the inside and the lost as being outside. The coming together of the ecclesia is not where evangelism took place in the early years. The apostle points out that although we may need to do business with and live among the outsiders, we are not to be a part of them and their culture. What's to say about Christians today who openly stand in judgment of the world and its systems? Paul's advice was to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your hands so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. With that, I'll give Paul the last word. That's it for this time. Next time, we're going to talk about the writings of the other apostles and what they had to say about the gathering of the ecclesia. Until then, God bless you, shalom, and maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.